You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rose irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market If your mind is in a fog and your mood is less buoyant than a paperweight, well, you might be able to walk it off. We have feedback mechanisms from the body that benefit every part of the body from engaging in that walking from our brain all the way down to our muscles and our feet. Could it really be that simple? Put a neighborhood stroll, a mosey over to the park, a sachet down the sidewalk, a constitutional after dinner, or a promenade along the boardwalk have profound health benefits for body and mind? Well, the answer is yes, and there may be evolutionary reasons for that. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute. In this episode, why your boots and your bodies are made for walking. And that's interesting enough, but surprising research tells us that the bodies of large dinosaurs were also built to amble and even some fish today and we all evolved from fish. So from the mechanics to the benefits, and whether you have four fins, three toes, or a pair of legs, get ready to talk the walk. Come on, come on, come on, we gotta get out of here. Gotta get out of here. Now, now, right now. Go, 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 let's go. Okay, remember this? A scene in the film Jurassic Park when the team is hightailing it away from a Tyrannosaurus Rex. Must go faster. We can understand the impulse to get away from a hungry T-Rex, although we don't really understand why. If a large carnivorous reptile is roaming about, you would be driving around in an open-top Jeep anyway. But here's some comfort. You might be able to let up on the gas. It turns out that T-Rex wasn't a runner. Thanks to his physiology, he was more of a highly efficient walker. I'm Hans Larsen. I'm a professor at McGill University and director of the Red Path Museum. I'm a paleontologist and biologist. He's been studying how T-Rex walks, and for a couple of reasons. We may all identify with the first. So one reason was just to find out for just plain curiosity, like how fast were these guys? How fast are they? Well, we clocked the T-Rex to 32 miles an hour. T-Rex? T- mm-hmm. You said you've got a T-Rex? Uh-huh. Say again. <laughs> we have a T-Rex. We're working on this project trying to understand what the ecosystems, and in particular how energy is flowing through food webs within these ancient ecosystems. And the only way to know that is to find out how fast and how much energy it takes for these guys to run. Dr. Larson and other scientists concluded that T-Rex was not built for speed after studying the body plan of 70 species of theropod dinosaurs, that is a group of bipedal dinosaurs. The scientists modeled how much energy each dinosaur would expend moving at different speeds, and one conclusion, smaller theropods could afford to make a dash for it, while larger dinos, those weighing more than 1,000 pounds, could stroll their way to a meal. Walking in any, any sort of terrestrial locomotion, or let's say locomotion period, uh, comes with incredible trade-offs. Whether you're swimming, walking, or flying, the investment that you make into developing and evolving those particular organs, it has some kind of priority, and that takes away from other things. So if we look at humans, for example, our legs weigh about 40% of our body mass in a, in a normal person. So practically 50% of our body is devoted, invested in our legs. Wow. Well, that's pretty good. Well, I, well, what was the percentage in T-Rex? It looked to me like, uh, at least the ones I see in the movies, had pretty big legs. 
Exactly. So, so the, the actual number um, is, is, is a hard one to get because we don't know how muscular they were. We can get some pretty good estimates, so like between 30 and 40 percent, um, but, but we don't have a really, really good number for that. Okay, so T-Rex uh, was famously on two legs, not four. Uh, what are the trade-offs there? Because it seems to me that four legs would involve, I don't know, less wear and tear on your feet and your legs. And, and after all, the fastest critters we know about today are all four-legged ones, you know, cheetahs and whatever. Yeah, so um, here, here's a really interesting um, point because so some animals that are really fast are, are four-legged. And, and when they're running, they're not really running on four legs. They're running on two legs, like a front set and a back set. And they have this incredible back spring to sort of launch and, and for these legs to sort of meet and extend and meet and extend. But having a set of legs in front and a set of legs behind uh, seems to be like this real sort of major innovation for high speed. Two legs, though, uh, brings with it something that I think is not as, as appreciated, and this is endurance. And so humans are famously great endurance runners. We're not super fast, but we can go really far at a pretty good, pretty good pace. And the same thing applies for two-legged dinosaurs as well. And what, what we were finding was that, that there's this broad spectrum, and that, that spectrum uh, played out evolutionarily in a very interesting way. Most of the giant carnivorous dinosaurs, like Allosaurus, uh, Carcharodontosaurus, Giganotosaurus, um, and, and the Abelosaurids, had relatively short hind limbs. And so these were like, I wouldn't say they're stumpy, but they're, but they're like gigantic animals, multi-ton animals with relatively short hind limbs. And then when we looked at tyrannosaurs, which are equally multi-ton animals, their legs were actually longer. And what we calculated from this was that they weren't necessarily faster. They were all coming in at about the same pace. Uh, let's say like the biggest ones still coming in at about 20 kilometers per hour. But what they were is actually more efficient. Like way more efficient. And so th this gave us the idea to keep on exploring and, and hypothesize that, that these are more or less endurance runners rather than sort of uh, fast uh, cheetah-like or, or ambush predators. I see. These, these guys, well, you mentioned that they go about as fast as a bicycle. Yeah. So about, about 20 kilometers per hour or about a bicycle speed, like sort of medium pace bicycle speed. But they were probably able to sustain that for a very long time. If, if I'm a predator, right? On the one hand, I want to be able to outrun the prey. There's no point in you know, seeing a, a gazelle over there or whatever the Mesozoic uh, equivalent was if I can't catch it. But on the other hand, uh, it might take me all day long just to find the gazelle. So what, what was the trade-off for T-Rex? So, so chasing down the prey is one part. Finding the prey uh, is the other. So how much is spent just sort of cruising around the landscape looking for things? And uh, it turns out that more energy is often spent doing that than actual the chase. And so being really efficient at walking provided what we think these big bodied uh, tyrannosaurs, this ability to cruise over broad landscapes with pretty high efficiency, greater than any other large carnivorous dinosaur. Now, you're interested in how these guys got around, but <laughs> an obvious question is, how do you know? I mean, you've said that we don't really know what their musculature was like. So you're just studying bones and, uh, you know, what does that tell you about how they walk? How do, how do you know how they walk? So we have a few lines of evidence on this. So one is that we can look, look to like sort of comparative anatomy. So there are lots of animals that, have, that, that are closely related to T-Rex, like living today, like birds, crocodiles, reptiles, you name it. And in most cases, uh, many of these muscles are quite comparable. So we know, we know exactly where muscle A starts and ends. And we can look to the fossils to look for muscle scarring, and we can reconstruct those on that. And people have been doing this for decades. And so we think we understand the muscular, at least like the, the sort of origin and insertion of every single muscle in the leg of a T-Rex and other dinosaurs as well. What we also know is what the end of the bones look like, like, like the, the joint surfaces. So we, we have an idea for how far the, the knee could extend and flex, how far the hip could do the same thing in the ankle. So, so we have a pretty good idea for range of motion uh, for all of these joints. And we have trackways. And none of the trackways for, for tyrannosaurs are running. Um, they're all walking. When you say trackways, you mean footprints, what I would call footprints, right? Exactly. And there, there, and there are lots of phenomenal footprints of dinosaurs around the world, um, uh, including from tyrannosaurs. But we have at least that to give us an idea for how far a single step would be 
for a footprint of that size, which, which then we can look to actual fossils for and measure like, here's how big the foot is, here how, here's how long the leg is, here's what the stride length would look like. Another thing that, that we do know about tyrannosaurs, this is probably the case for most dinosaurs, uh, but we have really good evidence for, for tyrannosaurs in, in particular, and that they were living in flocks or packs. And, and so, th so this herding or sort of group behavior um, seems to be the norm for all dinosaurs. And with this picture in mind, think about um, these sort of high endurance running predators and, and compare that to modern day or, or living high endurance predators. Most predators today are not that high endurance. So a cheetah conks out just after like 30 seconds. Uh, lions and tigers, same thing, like, like they can go for a few minutes, but then the chase is done. And so, so many, many of these large bodied predators are really fast, but, but not really high endurance unless we start to look for other animals like dogs. And so dogs and wolves are a really good, good example of, of a kind of a predator that has really good endurance running. And it might be for those reasons that actually dogs are sort of quote unquote man's or humankind's best friend because they, they really do keep up to us. And this I think would be a great analogy for especially tyrannosaurs, these sort of high endurance running pack hunting predators. I've had to run after a wild turkey. I was making a student film. It's a long story, and I don't need to go into it. But it turns out that turkeys can run really fast, like 23 miles an hour. They can almost keep up with Usain Bolt. Yeah, So, and, and this is true of most birds. Uh, birds are exceptionally fast, and um, when you layer onto that their, their incredible physiology, like, like the way they, way they breathe through this one-way airflow lung system and, and fill up a large part of their skeleton with air at the same time, they, they can actually have really high endurance. And so humans can outrun almost anything on the planet, endurance-wise, including horses. Um, but, but there's only a few that we can't. Dogs are some, uh, and ostrich is another. Everyone who has seen Jurassic Park and I believe that's just about everyone, <laughs> recalls when the, you know, the Tyrannosaurus was approaching our heroes. And, uh, you know, it stops the ground. I mean, it, it, you know, it isn't soft on its feet. It causes the coffee in the coffee cups to, you know, shimmer and shake and so forth and so on. And there's this loud thump. Uh, would that have been accurate? I don't think so. Um, even when, okay, so if you're standing beside an elephant and the elephant is walking by you, your, your coffee cup is not shaking on the table <laughs> in, in the same way. Like you'd have to be right beside the elephant. And so, so I think that this was just a, a sort of cinematic license uh, going on. However, so elephants and T-Rex uh, have these big, well, elephants we know have a big sort of softening cushion underneath their feet, a fibrocartilage pad, where uh, as, their, as their foot is pressing on the ground, it kind of squeezes that like sort of like a, like a sponge ball. Tyrannosaurs, based on their size and based on their foot anatomy, probably had something similar as well to sort of soften the impact every time they're landing on the ground. I have to say, when I look at birds, which I guess are dinosaurs, uh, you know, a lot of them, the pigeons out in the backyard, they, you know, they bob their heads as they move. And I'm thinking, man, that's got to be an expensive thing biologically because now their brains have to compensate for the fact that their eyes are, you know, darting back and forth. Is there any reason for this? And if so, did T-Rex also bob its head when it was moving around? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a fun question. And, and so, so when birds are bobbing their head, and this happens for, for all birds when they're walking, like if you look at an ostrich walking, what they're doing is they're stabilizing their head and letting their, their eyesight sort of catch or burn in that, that picture. And so it gives them high acuity for what's going on around them. And so, so it's a really good selective advantage for that. That being said, probably Tyrannosaurus and all, and all carnivorous dinosaurs probably bobbed their heads. You know, uh, when I was a kid, I figured that the big step in the evolution of Homo sapiens was standing up. But these guys were, you know, 100 million years ago and they were standing up. Uh, so I, I suppose that being bipedal, that's, that's an old invention. So the very first um, bipedal animals were coming out around 220 million years ago. And it's only happened twice. Like this is rare. Like so, there are bipedal dinosaurs, uh, and and and, and very close relations to them, and bipedal humans or hominoids. And and so so bi bipedalism is extremely rare. And as we start moving closer to birds, um, being bipedal certainly 
facilitated the origin of wings. And there's a lot of dinosaurs that were evolving just before the origin of birds that had wings or wing-like arms. Hans Larsen, thanks so very much for speaking with us. My pleasure. Hans Larsen is a paleontologist and a biologist and the director of the Red Path Museum at McGill University in Montreal. What an interesting interview, Seth. Now, um, what Dr. Larsen said was that T-Rex was an endurance walker, but that he also moved at the speed of a bicycle. But I guess when you are a dinosaur, moving at 12 miles an hour is walking, (laughs) whereas for us, that would be running. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, you always want to measure speed relative to your body size, right? That's why ants are so impressive. They can go their, you know, their whole body length in in the tiny fraction of a second. They're pretty good. They're really speeding, maybe even more so than T-Rex. But, you know, what I thought was interesting was the way Dr. Larson explained the trade-off that, you know, evolution has to make between going really fast and being able to bring down your prey and just sort of ambling over the landscape to find your prey. Right, and also the idea that if the energy is going to go into certain parts of your body, it's not going to go into other parts of your body. So in the case of T-Rex, much of his body is invested in those great big legs, but maybe less in his, for example, maybe his arms, (laughs) those tiny arms. Yeah, those... Those tiny little arms, they've been a mystery for a long time. People have offered all sorts of uh, theories about, you know, what they did with those tiny arms and, you know, things such as, I mean, holding on to a mate or just holding their food or just having them dangle there and they don't do much of anything. But I, I did see a paper recently that suggested that these tiny arms, they might be tiny, but they were good at slashing So that might be uh, interesting to (laughs) T-Rex. Less interesting to the victim of a T-Rex, but very interesting to T-Rex. Yes, indeed. It sounds like the bottom line is one of the trade-offs for humans is that maybe we can't go fast, but we do have endurance. We can go a long ways. And in that way, we are like a a T-Rex. We can walk for a long time. Up next, incentive for other animals to stop sitting and start walking. After all, you don't want your brain to dissolve like it seems to have done for this sedentary sea creature. Brains are expensive things to maintain. The question is, why do you need one? You need one in order to control movement, to escape predators, all of that kind of thing. If you don't need it anymore, you're not going to pay the price of maintaining it. Put on your most comfortable shoes as we continue to talk the walk on Big Picture Science. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. The science evidence is clear. The way to get a leg up on the world is to hoof it. Not only are humans built for locomotion, but walking has profound health benefits for the muscles, the heart, the brain, the gallbladder, the pancreas. Well, I'm not so sure of those last two, but I am interested in the fact that walking can reverse aging of our brains. That's why neuroscientist Shane O'Mara at Trinity College Dublin is concerned about the detrimental health effects that accompany our increasingly sedentary lifestyle. Dr. O'Mara says the aphorism that 
sitting is the new smoking is only somewhat exaggerated. For one, not walking can change your personality and not for the better. And what we know is that uh, people who are sedentary have predictable changes in certain dimensions of their personality. They become less open to experience, they become slightly less agreeable, and uh, they become less extrovert. But if for some bizarro reason you're not particularly interested in being alert, more relaxed, agreeable, having a healthy heart, or reversing the effects of time zero on your gray matter, well, maybe you'd be interested in walking for the joy of it. His book, In Praise of Walking, A New Scientific Exploration, presents both the reasons why our minds benefit from motion and the sheer pleasure of perambulation. Benefits are not limited to those who can just throw on a pair of wellies in response to the beckoning green hills and dales of the Emerald Isle. Shane O'Mara celebrates any kind of walking, including urban walking. But if you require, as I do, a little more motivation to get moving, well, he can provide it. Let's just say that his tale of the sea squirt, a marine invertebrate, is a cautionary one that gives new meaning to the term staying put. But let's start with a definition of sedentary for humans. Physiologically, sedentariness is generally defined as less than about 5,000 steps per day. So walking less than about four kilometers a day. Okay, so to put this in context, you said we should aim for about 5,000 steps a day. Um, now, remind- I say we should, less than 5,000 steps a day is regarded as being sedentary. Oh, I have a feeling you're going to raise that bar for us, aren't you? I'm going to raise that bar an awful lot. My usual advice is to do 5,000 more than whatever you're doing at present. We're built to walk, you know, 15, 18 kilometers a day, day in, day out. Okay. To put this into context, though, and probably maybe painful context, under 5,000, you're considered sedentary. How many steps do you think it takes us to get from the couch to the kitchen in the average home? Oh, probably not very many at all. In my own house, uh, from my bedroom to my kitchen is 38 or 39 steps. <laughs> so down the stairs okay. and into the kitchen. And uh, we know from new generation of, of step counters that there are many people who just don't walk very much at all. They, they spend a lot of time sitting around 8, 10, 12 hours a day on the couch uh, or getting up from the couch to go to the cupboard to get some snacks and then sitting down again. You know, there are a lot of benefits to walking. You write how it improves our lungs, our heart and our brain health. But Shane, doesn't any kind of exercise help with our mind and our body? What's, what's unique about walking? First of all, you're correct. Every form of exercise is good for you, so long as you're not uh, injuring yourself. But what's unique about walking is, is something very simple. Walking is the, the kind of singular adaptation that humans have. And it is something that we evolved to do very early in life. And it's something we can continue doing right throughout the course of life. There are very, very few, uh, if any, 88-year-old uh, American football players. But there are lots and lots of people who can walk and walk a lot at that age. And uh, we have feedback mechanisms from the body that benefit every part of the body from engaging in that walking from our brain all the way down to our muscles in our feet. What is it about walking? I mean, maybe to answer that, you could explain what it is our bodies are doing when they walk. It's kind of a mechanical feat, if you pardon the pun. Yeah, no, so I think the problem we have is we don't have enough words to describe walking, and I think there are many, many different types of walking. So. Uh, if we take this, the very, very simple example of getting up and walking to the cupboard to get a, a bag of potato chips. Which okay, just to be clear, you have mentioned potato chips now twice in this interview. I'm just saying it might, no, they might be on your mind. <laughs> I mentioned snacks the first time. But okay. Anyway, <laughs> but think about it in the following way. What you have to do is uh, send a command signal from the brain. And that command signal then initiates a whole series of changes. You have to mobilize a whole series of, of brain and body systems that were previously quiescent. Uh, and as you are starting to stand, the vestibular system, which is the system in the inner ear, its job is to stabilize the position of the head as you are getting up to move. And then when you get up, you must actually move. You must send signals to the muscles of the legs saying, start walking. You know, I'm exhausted just listening to the description of walking. I don't know if I have enough energy for walking now. 
But it is automatic. So what you describe sounds complex. Uh, but yet, when we go on walks and we get into that rhythm, you could feel that you could walk all day. Yeah, and that's the key point. The word rhythm that you've used is exactly the correct word. There's a rhythm to it. You initiate the movement and uh, the movement is executed automatically. Uh, in fact, as you said, it would be tremendously exhausting to have to pay attention to every footfall that you make. You support something that neuroscientists call a motor-centric view of the brain. And this, I believe, is the idea that the brain evolved to support movement. Is that the idea? That's exactly the idea. The question really comes down to why do some living things have brains and other living things don't? We move around, uh, animals move around, but trees and plants don't. Uh, so the idea is very simple. Those non-moving organisms, those non-motile organisms, don't need a brain because they're not moving. Well, this is best illustrated by the life of the sea squirt. Now, you write about this in your book. It's it's an incredible story um, of evolution, but it it's also an allegory in some ways, and we can get to that in a moment. But the adult sea squirt remains fixed to a bit of rock or coral as an adult. Um, it has no brain at that point because it's eaten it. It didn't start out that way. So Shane, what does the life cycle of the sea squirt, which is this marine invertebrate by the end of its life, what does that reveal about the relationship between brains and movement? Yes, yeah, so the sea squirt is uh, an amazingly beautiful creature. If you, you look up some images, you'll see they're just staggering in their, in their beauty. Um, and when they're in their larval stage, they move around, they know up from down, they have a very primitive eye uh, so they can detect light, they hunt, and they have a spinal cord. Without that, the kind of swimming rhythmic movement that it engages in wouldn't be possible for it. Uh, so they're in the same huge animal uh, family that humans are in, because we also have spinal cords. But as they mature, they attach themselves to a rock with a, a, an adhesive disc, and uh, they change their shape over a period of a few days to maybe a week or two. And the first thing they do is ingest their own uh, central nervous system. And its brain, because it doesn't need it anymore. It doesn't need it anymore. It absorbs it as a source of energy. Brains are expensive things to maintain because they control so many things and look after so many functions. So the question is, why do you need one? Well, then you need one in order to control movement, to escape predators, all of that kind of thing. If you don't need it anymore, you're not going to pay the price of maintaining it because the functions that it has evolved for to help you hunt, to find a mate, to uh, get away from predators, all of those kinds of things no longer count because you are stuck to a rock. You're making the case for brains. Yeah, in essence. And, and the view is, is entirely uncontroversial in neuroscience. But it, what's become clear in the, in the last couple of years, if you think about how we approach the study of the brain, typically we've done things like look at the visual system or the auditory system or or taste or whatever it is, and we've chased the stimulus into the brain. But what is now clearly the case is that the brain is not organized from generating movements along the lines of inputs that it gets from these various systems. Instead, it's organized around movement, and these systems feed movement. And what you find is that when you're up and moving, the senses are sharpened. So there's a feedback from movement onto the senses that's not there when you're not moving. If I can just press you on the detail of the sea squirt, as you can see, I'm preoccupied with this idea. It is fascinating. How does the sea squirt absorb its spinal cord and its brain? I mean, those cells are literally absorbed into its body? They're digested, basically. Uh, they're no longer maintained. You have scavenger cells that come along and chew them up, and uh, that's it. They're gone. <laughs> Well, the image is kind of scary, isn't it? And this is where it, it gets into the allegory, because all of us sitting at our desks all day or sitting you know, on our couches, wherever it, wherever it is, it's a cautionary tale that we are kind of becoming the sea squirt with the dissolving brains. Yeah, but it, it's not just an allegory. We know actually that frailty, for example, is a, is a real consequence of, of people being bedbound for uh, weeks at a time. You lose muscle mass. Uh, when you're not engaged in movement. And there's a whole lot of other changes like this from sitting around. So a sedentary lifestyle is actually very bad for us. And uh, we do need to somehow incorporate movement into our everyday lives 
we're certainly not built for sitting around for 11 hours a day. Have you ever seen images or video of the octopuses that um, can walk along the, yeah, the ocean floor? They're very, very eerie <laughs> and quite, <laughs> quite amazing. Uh, and that actually tells you something interesting as well. That you don't really need necessarily to have a skeleton in order to walk, that there are other ways of moving that are with limbs that are not attached to bone that get you uh, from place to place, but much less efficiently than uh, if you had a, uh, a skeleton. Is one of the reasons walking is efficient and beneficial to humans is that it frees up our upper bodies so we can move our torsos, we can hold on to things, we can look at the horizon. Yeah, so the, uh, there's, there are lots of theories out there about how it is that humans came to have the kind of unique body form that we have. So if you, if you look at us and compare us to other animals, even our, our close uh, relatives, chimpanzees and things like this, we're not knuckle walkers. We don't walk on four limbs. Uh, we, we walk in an obligate, upright fashion. And this frees our hands. As you can see, I'm gesturing all the time uh, when, I'm, when I'm talking to you. And it allows our, our arms to do things that we couldn't do if, if we were walking. We can hold staves or sticks to walk with. We can hold children. Uh, we can carry food. We can point. We can emote. We can shake our fists in anger. Uh, we can throw things. You know, we're really, really good at uh, throwing spears and throwing stones and things like this. Other creatures can't do this. And the niche that we occupy is a distinctly different one to the niche that our closest non-human primate relatives occupy. Now, I've read that you are a fast walker and that you're, you tend to be a little impulsive, that if the light is about to change, you dart across, you yeah. dart no, across the road. Yeah, I'm dangerous to walk within traffic. I would be convicted of jaywalking uh, if I lived in the U.S., don't have that crime over here. Um, and I hate being delayed. I love walking in cities. Uh, and I hate the fact that pedestrians are always the ones that are made to queue. Uh, and not just pedestrians, you know, people, uh, I, one of the things I focus on in the book is the problem that walking in cities presents for people who are old or who have mobility impairments. Uh, and that, you know, crosswalks with traffic lights are designed for young adults who can walk at around about 1.2 meters a second. But if you're on a frame, if you're on a crutch or if you're in, in a wheelchair, uh, this presents a particular problem because typically you will walk or move much more slowly than this. So uh, I have a general dislike of, of cars and pedestrians mixing. I think we need to design our towns and cities so that cars are kept away as much as is possible uh, from our pedestrians. And uh, I've seen many lovely pictures from uh, the US since COVID has happened with streets being reclaimed for uh, pedestrians. Uh, and it looks great. That's happening here as well. Uh, so maybe it's one of the positive outcomes of COVID that uh, we've actually discovered that we can make our cities nice places to be by getting cars out of them. You must walk just about everywhere that you can walk. How, uh, how, how many steps do you take a day? So today, uh, if I hadn't had this conversation. Uh, I would be out walking now. <laughs> oh, um, Shane, that's so hard so to I'm hear. Go out afterwards. So yesterday I did about 14,000 steps. Uh, today I'm at a, not a, I'm not terribly happy. I've done about 8,000, but I'm going to pop out and do a quick 5,000 before. Uh, I... So that's your way of saying that this interview, this interview is having a detrimental effect yeah, on your health. Yeah, as well. Look at this. All right. <laughs> then we should wrap this up uh, so we can get you up on your feet as soon as possible. Um, does it matter how fast you walk, Shane? Because some people will say that walking doesn't count as exercise unless it's speed walking. But it sounds like you're saying that doesn't matter. Yeah, no, I think people have to be, uh, uh, have a sense of what they mean by exercise. And, you know, when you start to try and define exercise, it becomes a little bit nebulous, doesn't it? You know, what counts as exercise for you? You know, if, if you're somebody who's got a, a mobility impairment because you're elderly, getting out and moving at, you know, two kilometers an hour is good for you. Uh, whereas, you know, somebody in their early 20s is perfectly hale and hearty. Walking at two kilometers an hour consistently is actually bad for you because we know that there's a relationship between walking speed and uh, cardiovascular health. So I, I think we need to be reasonable about what's appropriate for the individual. And we need to think also about the purpose of the walk. You know, some of the best walks you'll ever have are a quiet uh, stroll with another person where you're both uh, engaged in kind of wonderful interpersonal synchrony where there's lots of laughter and humor going on. And the mental health benefits of that will be absolutely fantastic for you. 
So, you know, you, you really need to think about, this is why I say we don't have enough words for walking because we have social walking, walking for cardiovascular health, we're walking for social protest, we're walking for lots and lots of different reasons. And we should, we should be conscious of all of the different reasons for why we, it is that we might walk. Shane O'Mara, it was such a delight to talk to you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Molly. And we'll all imagine you taking a walk right now. Where, where are you going to walk to right now? Oh, it's really sad. I have to walk down to the local shop to pick up uh, uh, <laughs> bread and a whole bunch of other things uh, to prepare lunches for tomorrow. <laughs> and snacks, perhaps. Uh, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> when the sun goes down or Dublin town, the colors last for hours old. The lights come on, the night's a song, and the streets all turn. Called heaven's kiss like teardrops off an angel's wing And don't you know you'll cleanse your soul with a walk in the Irish rain Shane O'Mara is a neuroscientist and professor of experimental brain research at Trinity College, Dublin. He's the author of In Praise of Walking, A New Scientific Exploration. So, really interesting how important physiologically walking is for humans. But, you know, I, I guess for other critters too, because the whole point of animals is that they move. Uh, that's how you can distinguish them from, you know, everything else that's alive on the planet. And uh, apparently it, it's kind of a feedback mechanism that if you, you move a lot, your your body's better for it. The obvious counterexample, that sea squirt. I'm feeling a little bad for those guys. You know, they, they finally find a home, they settle down, and then they absorb their own nervous system. They absorb their own brains. Yes, but they get to experience life on both sides of the movement spectrum. So they get to move around when they're young and then settle down and relax and just focus on eating when they're older. Really, so it is It is an anthem to movement, that our bodies are built to move. And as uh, Dr. Omaro said, that uh, there's a feedback mechanism in every part of our body from our brains down to our toes that lights up when we move and when we walk. You know, it reminds me of the koalas, actually, the story about the sea squirt, because the koalas, you know, develop a pretty uh, sedentary lifestyle. I mean, they're just hanging in a tree, right, eating uh, bamboo shoots. But uh, apparently their brains, not in individuals, but the whole species, the brains are smaller for having done that. Turns out humans are not the only animals motivated to shake a leg. We discovered that approximately 10 species of fish are able to walk like salamanders on land. Next, the story of fish out of water. Let's get your shanks mara moving. We continue to talk the walk on Big Picture Science. There are many ways for fish to get out of the water. They can use their tails to jump out of the sea, like a dolphin or a flying fish, or flap their flippers at the shoreline, like a mudfish. But fish generally do not, like the creature from the Black Lagoon, stroll from the water onto the beach on their own finny little feet. He said generally they do not. But scientists have discovered almost a dozen fish that can walk. Not used to walk, as in millions of years ago, but can walk now. And while their gait is not upright like the creature, neither is it a series of skips like the mudfish. The cave angelfish and nearly a dozen of its brethren, called hillstream loaches, found in Thailand, walk with a four-finned gait and are the only ones we know that do. But if your backbone is connected to your pelvic fin, you may be hip to the idea of walking. Biologist Brooke Flamang at the New Jersey Institute of Technology and her colleagues have authored a paper in the Journal of Morphology about their study of these fishes, one that provides insight into how our aquatic ancestors might have first come ashore. 
We found these loaches. They're a blind cave angel loach in Thailand. And this fish, Cryptotora thamicola, is extremely rare. It's only found in this one system of about six interconnected caves. So it only exists in this one place. But there's loaches all over. And so what was really exciting was we had found out a few years back that this one cave loach is able to walk like a salamander because part in, in part because it has a fully formed pelvis. So most fish, their pelvic plate where their fins are attached to is just hanging in a muscular sling in their body. And there is no bony connection between their pelvic fins and their vertebral column, which means that for most fishes, they can't transfer force if they push their fins against the ground. So they can't use their pelvic fins as a limb. Loaches, and we found the Cryptotora, um, the rare cave loach, as well as these 10 or so other species, do have some semblance of a pelvic bone. So they basically have hips that allows them to be able to transfer forces when they push their fins against the ground to lift themselves up and propel themselves forward with each step. I'm a little curious here. These fish were all in this cave, and they are apparently blind fish. And I kind of wonder... What is it about their existence that causes them to want to walk in the first place? I mean, how does that help them? So the walking part may be common to a large number of loaches, even the ones that aren't in caves, right? So a number of the loaches we found that could walk are just out in these fast-flowing river systems. And that's true also for the blind cave fish. So these are all commonly called hill stream loaches as well. And these fish usually orient against the flow in really fast flowing waters. You know, for a fish that's maybe four centimeters long to be in a meter per second flow and still walking casually up a slippery rock face like it doesn't care at all, it takes a lot of strength to be able to do something like that. And that's what these fishes are doing. They're doing it both in a river environment and then these cave fishes are doing it in the cave. It just so happened that we found the cave fish first, you know, four years ago, but also one of the interesting things about these cave fishes is they have the most predominant hip uh, structure. So they have the largest bony hip that we've seen out of all of these other loaches. So the fact that these fish that you've been studying exist in caves, I mean, was that essential to being able to walk? Is there some reason that that would develop more aggressively in the dark cave environment? So what more than likely happens, this adaptation originally involved for their ability to walk in really fast flowing water, where they're almost completely out of the water, going up over rocks as the water's flooding down over them like a fire hose. And so then they just walk up and over and through crevices and wherever they want to go. And so we're seeing that this walking ability probably came well before any sort of cave enhancement happened. I, I kind of wonder why the salmon haven't developed legs. It sounds like <laughs> They, they could use them. The Cryptotora thamicola is sort of rare in the fact that it's it's a cave fish that does this. It also, however, happens to be the one with sort of the most flamboyant hips. And that may be because it's such a small population. And so that's something that got enhanced with inbreeding and, and such inside the cave because there's not a lot of other fishes bringing more variants into the population. I, I'm just kind of curious how these fish actually move their legs or fins? I mean, do they first move the forward ones back and then the backwards ones? Or do they do this sort of diagonally the way I think dogs and horses walk where, you know, the front left and the back right are synchronized with the, the, the front right and the back left, that kind of thing? You nailed it. Yeah, exactly. It's called a, a lateral sequence diagonal couplets gate. So when you have the left front and the right back, and then it swaps to vice versa of that, the right front and the left back. And that's that's the alternating tetrapod gate that we see almost all quadrupeds doing at a regular slow walking speed. Well, how far could they walk? I mean, could, could they compete in the Olympic contest? I mean, or do they only go a, a foot or two? They have the ability to walk quite a distance from one cave to another. We're not entirely sure why they're doing it, if they're following some sort of chemosensory cue, if there's some part of the cave that's better for mating or food or, you know, there hasn't been a lot of ecological study on it yet as of yet. But um, they do have the ability to walk quite a distance and at quite a high velocity if they want to. And they're on land. I mean, to, to be clear, they're not walking underwater. They can walk underwater, but they do tend to do it in water that's lower than their body height or completely out of water. So they do walk on sheer rock faces. One of the really things about Cryptotora is that it will climb up 
a, a sheer 90 degree incline rock face, curling its fins over little rough spots, just like you would see somebody who was a human rock climber looking for good handholds. This, this fish does the exact same thing while a waterfall is, is falling well past it and so it's not wet at all. You had mentioned that they not only can walk, but they have this anatomical adaptation, you know, hips, uh, that allow them to do that. I, mean, I never thought about the function of hips uh, other than, you know, to hold my trousers up, I suppose. But what does it do for the fish? Does it allow their back legs maybe to, you know, push harder? What, what's the deal? Hips are going to be really important for anything to walk on land for a number of reasons. Number one is that if you push your fin against the ground, and that force isn't transferred to the rest of the body, you don't go anywhere. So by having the bony connection of the hips between the fins and the vertebral column, it allows them to be able to push their fins against the ground and get a um, propelling force as you would with a step, right? So it's basically allows them to be able to push their body forward with every fin step. The other great thing about these hip bones that we found is that because they're large and um, sort of have a flare to them, it allows for more areas for muscle connection. And so we see some really hyper-developed muscles in these fishes that tend to be of the category that we think can walk really, really well. Brooke, I suspect that most people figure walking was an invention of landlubbers, the animals who eventually colonized the continents, you know, roughly 400 million years ago, but apparently they weren't the first. Well, um, we know that early fishes had the ability to walk as well, at least underwater. We can tell that from the fossil record and the, and the bones in, in early fishes 400 million years ago. But now looking at some of these more recent fishes that we found, we can see that they have the ability to walk like salamanders with an alternating forelimb, hilum gait, um, even with the presence of fins. The earliest trackway that exists, we don't actually know what organism made those prints. And they have a very fin webbing look type appearance to them. And they look like a sort of an alternating gait. It's highly likely that there were a number of different organisms that tried to make terrestrial excursions in a variety of different ways. You know, we've gotten a lot of press about things like Ichthyostega and Acanthostega and Tiktaalik, but those are only the ones that we know the best so far. There's probably a lot of other organisms we just haven't been able to find yet. So it sounds as if walking, I mean, it's not a modern invention. It was invented in the oceans before the animals crawled out onto the continents. And more than that, walking came on the scene very early. I mean, we shouldn't be any prouder of our ability to walk than we are of our ability to see things. Oh, no, absolutely. And as far as seeing things goes, I mean, cephalopods can see things quite well themselves, too, with an eye very similar to our own. <laughs> okay, so there does, I mean, it's, it's, it's just so astounding how nature takes one design and it applies it all over the place in, you know, various scenarios. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that's really interested as a functional morphologist, comparative biomechanist in, in my field in general, is that you look at all these animals and there are so many similarities and it, it, it makes you think that there's a certain number of constraints. There are certain ways the puzzle pieces fit together that work really well, and there's probably a lot that don't. And those are the ones that got selected out, and those are the ones that you don't see. But with certain organization of, of body parts, you tend to see the same sort of patterns over and over again. Well, finally, Brooke, when I ask myself why we have four appendages, two arms, two legs, I figure that's because we're descended from a fish that lived, well, maybe it wasn't really a fish, that lived a long time ago. I think you mentioned it, the Tiktaaliks. And, uh, you know, maybe you could fill me in. Is that right? Is that why I don't have two arms and four legs? Oh, well, so <laughs> you don't have two arms and four legs is a whole other question about patterning. But but yes, so the, I mean, the vertebrate body, and you are, by the way, absolutely descended from a fish. We all are. Everything is a fish categorically when you break down the entire lineage of vertebrate life. But in terms of limb development, yeah, there's, there is, again, that really solid pattern. So there are certain constraints in the way that our genes signal where on our bodies certain things are going to develop into limbs. So I guess what you're saying is, except for this accident of evolution, I might have had maybe four arms and two legs so I could play piano duets with myself. Right. That would be great. Yeah. Or, you know, you could make yourself coffee and breakfast at the same time, all kinds of things. <laughs> <laughs> That's terrific. Well, Brooke Flamang, thank you so very much for speaking with us. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Brooke Flamang is a biologist at the New Jersey Institute of Technology.
What I really loved about that conversation, Seth, was the image in my mind of these fish walking from one cave to the other, sort of with the casualness that we might walk over to a neighbor's house. They're walking from one cave to another. Yeah, and and it wasn't quite clear why they did it. I mean, uh, Dr. Flamang said that they didn't know, actually. Uh, she suggested some things, but I, I, I guess if they don't get around, they I don't know, they have problems with reproduction or food supply or something. Um, I like the description of the way that they walked, this lateral sequence diagonal couplets gait. It sounds like a very fancy 19th century dance step. Um, it almost is, but the idea that you put your right arm and your left leg forward, and then your left arm and your right leg forward, and that's how you walk as a quadruped. You know, I once took a dog sled ride up in the Arctic, and, you know, you're behind all these dogs, and they're starting off walking with that gait that nobody can pronounce that you just mentioned, Molly. But after they get up to speed, and they love to get up to speed, they go back to that, you know, first the two front, and then the two back, and then the two front, and then the two back. And they, you know, they (laughs) they really move right along. So the big picture here is that walking is good for us, but not just that, we were built to walk. Now in this show, we talked about dinosaurs and then humans and then fish, but if we did it in sequence through the evolutionary timeline, we would have started with fish. And as Dr. Flamang said, we all evolved from fish. So we're really grateful (laughs) to those first fish who took a chance and moseyed onto the beach. So all the vertebrates uh, rose from fishes. We're all descendants from fish. And, uh, you know, they apparently got a good design going right at the beginning because it's been good enough for every, every animal since, it seems, anything that's big enough to have a skeleton. Well, we couldn't do this show without the producers who walk the talk. Senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producer Sarah Derwin. Thank you to both of them. I am executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley. Thanks also to financial support from Rena Sholsky David and Sammy David and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that investigates, among other things, life in extreme environments. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. Also, a big thanks to our listeners and to our Patreon supporters. This episode of Big Picture Science on the evolutionary history and mechanics of walking is Talk the Walk. I have a a silly walk, and I'd like to obtain a government grant to help me develop it. (laughs) I see. Uh, May I see your silly walk? Yes, certainly, yes. Uh, that's it, is it? Yes, that's it, yes. Mm-hmm. It's not particularly silly, is it? I, I mean, the right leg isn't silly at all, and the left leg merely does a forward aerial half-turn every alternate step. Yes, but I think with, with government backing, I could make it very silly. 